Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Not only have I been the owner of Mint Mobile for the last few years, I've also been a customer. I don't know if you knew this, but anyone can get the same premium wireless for $15 a month plan that I've been enjoying. It's not just for celebrities, so do like I did and have one of your assistant's assistants switch you to Mint Mobile today. I'm told it's super easy to do at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. And welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Writers Toolshed. I'm your host, Richie Billing, and today I'm delighted to welcome back Yanina and Lucy from the Faith Fellows podcast for a chat about Beowulf and King Arthur. Um, these two tales, the history stretch back all the way to the uh, early Middle Ages, and they served as huge influences for the likes of Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, who went on to define the fantasy genre as we know and love it today. So I thought it'd be really interesting to dive back in to where it all began, to see what made these tales so alluring for the, the fathers of the fantasy genre, and what can we as writers learn from them? Because they've been around for over a thousand years and people are still harping on about them, so... There must be some kind of storytelling gem in there somewhere. It's a really interesting chat, and I hope you're going to learn something new from it too. Before we get to that, though, um, just a quick reminder that if you haven't already um, subscribed or followed the show, please do so to make sure that you don't miss out on any future episodes. If you really like what we do, a quick rating on the Spotify mobile app means the world. It's a great way to support us and it helps other writers and listeners discover us too. We've recently hit 100 ratings, which is absolutely fantastic. So thank you very, very much, everyone who's taken the time to give that quick review. It really does mean a lot. So thank you very much. If you'd like to carry on your learning beyond this podcast, then you can check out our dedicated Patreon page. We have lots of free content. Even if you, you don't sign up, you can check out what we've got on there. Um, we've got tiers ranging from pound a month all the way up to £20 a month where you can get access to a one-to-one monthly session where I can help you with any bits that you've got right, uh, going on at the moment. Um, if you want advice from writers or anything like that, yeah, you can check that out as well. And next month, on the 30th of November, myself and um, the brilliant book coach, Emma Daisy, are partnering up for a free class on email marketing specifically aimed at writers. Emma is brilliant when it comes to email marketing. I've invested an awful lot in trying to get better at it, and I've reached a point now where I'm feeling... A lot happier with how it's going, judging from chatting with other people who are going through this as well and, and sharing my ideas uh, and the things I've learned with them. They've told me that it's helped them massively. So I think the time has come for me to pass on that knowledge to everybody else. And this one, this class is completely free, just like the last one. And when you sign up, you also get access to loads of other free stuff as well. So you get a copy of a Fantasy Writer's Handbook. You can also get access to 
another workshop called SEO for beginners or search engine optimization for beginners. This is ideal if you're looking to write a, a lot of content for your website, blog posts and um, guides, anything like that, book reviews, stuff like that. It helps you structure your content, structure your website in a way that search engines love and means that you're going to get people visiting your website every single day um, for no cost at all other than the time commitment that you put into it. So um, to get access to all of that, click the link in the description and you can register today for free via Eventbrite. And if you have any questions at all about the show, about anything else I've just mentioned, please don't uh, hesitate to get in touch by emailing the fantasy writers toolshed at gmail.com or you can also get me at richie at richiebilling.com too right now it's time to get on with the show and i'm thrilled to welcome back after a little bit of a break janina Arndt and lucy atkinson from the faith fellows podcast i'm thrilled to welcome back to the toolshed janina Arndt and lucy atkinson from the brilliant faith fellows podcast how's it going you okay tonight yeah Doing all right? No, we were just chatting there. So it's been a while since uh, we've all come together to, to chat about folklore and mythology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to have you back. And one thing that I was keen to discuss was sort of the influence that classic folk stories like Beowulf and King Arthur and all the Arthurian legends around that. Have influenced fantasy or influenced the the people who have gone on to develop the genre, like Tolkien, and basically what what the current trends are, are shifting toward now. If, if people are still enjoying them classic tales, or if now they're looking for something a fresh bit different. So, oh. what would you like to start with, Beowulf or King Arthur? I think we do our author first. I think the author <laughs> is the strong foot. <laughs> oh, okay. Arthur is supposed to be earlier in history also. Um, yeah. Logical. Yeah. yeah. So where did it all come from? I, I mean, I was—I think I was saying to you before, my exposure to the Arthurian legends is the, the TV show Merlin. Oh. <laughs> I mean, not, isn't not it very much exposure all? at all. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it is for, for most of us. Um, in, in recent times at least anyway um and there's nothing wrong with that uh the, the the main difference i feel with with arthur and uh and like other folk tales is that there there is some historical basis which which we've lost a lot of but like there is some historical evidence that he was um a warrior not a king but that's wrong scrap king arthur um he also wasn't english uh, obviously, because he was he was fighting the English, he's on the British side. We're not entirely sure whether he was Cornish or Welsh. No stone castle, so you know, basically, all yeah. the setting stuff that you expect about King Arthur is all wrong. So there's no sword involved either historically. Nothing that we remember really that we've got anywhere written down. Um, yeah. But all these kinds of elements that we connect with King Arthur were all sort of added later on so the sword was added later but the sword that he pulls from the stone is not even Excalibur Excalibur yeah. is the one that he, that the lady of the lake gives him yeah. um so that's that's another common misconception I'm guessing um, there were no dragons as well you know I mean, <laughs> I mean I like dragons so I like to 
<laughs> yeah, well, King Arthur killed them all. That's why there's no, no, none left to kill them all. Basically, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, we have no evidence for anyone called Arthur either. Yeah. Um, is the next thing. But like in the sixth century, suddenly all the firstborn sons of any nobles were called Arthur. And then the, the first reference we have to him, which is a really cool reference, actually, um, is in a in a poem about this other really amazing leader Gwadar, who um you know he was he could do anything in the world and he was the best sort of leader that they had in ages but says the poet he was no arthur and that is the very first actual reference in text that we have to arthur that's the cool. warrior leader uh, that's so cool isn't it that, yeah. you've, you've got this sort of offhand reference like everybody already knows who he is everybody knows the story we don't need to we don't need to delve any deeper it's like a perfect bit of world building i know you just reveal yeah. a little detail just a little throwaway comment like that and everyone's like what the fuck yeah exactly <laughs> and that is what historians are looking at now because for all we know there might be quite a lot of truth to it there must have been some kind of uh, some kind of military leader who did fight the English off, yeah, um, for at least some time, and uh, that is that is one of those one of those things that's interesting. But yeah, so that's that's the the origins. Um, it's supposed to be the original, is supposed to be sort of set in the the early sixth century, something like that. Yeah, unfortunately, the darkest of ages that we've got. Um, even if historians are always on about how they don't want it to be called Dark Ages, but that is the time when we've got yeah. the fewest sorts of documents, unfortunately. So, where did it get picked up from? From there, was it uh, sort of uh, storytellers and stuff just carry on this legend or the tales yeah. of this heroic warrior? And Pretty it's just much sort just of that. Spiraled, escalated around a campfire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, the only other like documents we've got are storytelling documents. Um, it's quite interesting to see how different cultures have picked it up through the Middle Ages as well. Like the most important Arthurian legends that we've got, um, like you were you were talking about um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. All of that sort of medieval stuff that then inspired the Round Table, Camelot, and all that. Yeah. Which, again, it doesn't really belong with the original figure. Um, all of that was sort of added on by uh, French um, storytellers like uh, Marie de France and uh, Chrétien de Troyes. Um, and they they wrote all of their... Um, there was Mallory um, who wrote uh, La Mort d'Arthur. And they, they wrote sort of the classic um, elements into the story that we now associate with it, like Excalibur, like Lancelot, yeah. um, Sir Gawain... Uh, you know, a bunch of other knights who weren't like Percival wasn't associated with that before, um, and the Holy Grail, which again wasn't probably wasn't a concern of the original Arthur. Yeah, that's that's a proper careful direction to, to go in there. Yeah, I was I was nowhere. We're just gonna throw a Holy Grail in. <laughs> exactly. That's that you like, know we need a like need. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, everyone's losing interest in this now. We need to uh, liven it up a bit. <laughs> yeah yeah it's an old conflict we don't care about anymore or it's that also come at the end really of like the sort of the original tales of Arthur was that sort of thrown in at the end the holy grail or um well no that was that was thrown in um like in in high medieval times um yeah. so like 11th 12th 13th century 
but like that's by no means the end of the storytelling Um, so after that like we've got a huge amount of German retellings as well who just actually focus more on Percival and the Grail than they do on uh, for example the the French focus more on Lancelot and you know his relationship with Guinevere because that's what the French were interested in you know (laughs) you know um, so I, I think that's always that shows quite a lot about the culture that you're talking about as well as what they like what their storytellers pick out out of the elements that different storytellers have thrown in yeah um so that is that is really cool and then it goes on to obviously later adaptations throughout like it was basically adapted throughout history um every single century has has its own adaptations and references um up to the point where you've got in the 19th century you've then got wagner who wrote um Tristan and Isolde, you know, and all that. He's got his his holy grail in there. Um, my parents live in a little uh, quarter of um, of a German city where every street is named after something in a Wagner opera. So cool. close by is the Grail Street, you know. Oh, nice. <laughs> and then there's Tristan Street right next to Isolde Street. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite funny. That's um, really cool. It lives on, you know, it, it lives on. Um, I think that's what's impressed me more than anything, probably the motivation for talking about it, is the influence of these stories. I suppose you can even throw, like, the, the Iliad in there and that, or like, yeah. a chron- like a massive chronicle and story like that is just, like, even thousands of years later, people still talking about it. Exactly. Uh, for some reason, even though most people don't study those myths, we all know them. We still all know them. Um, and they're known across the continent as well. Arthur is such a European myth, even though that it, you know it, it started off with a very local little war leader. Basically, you know, he wasn't even a king of other other people. Yeah. So just because of this this enormous victory and the meaning for his people that carried, and that that's what fascinated the continent. Yeah. Really. I suppose people just love these these figures. Like I do like a bit of historical fiction and um there's a, a writer called christian cameron who wrote about a, a character called aram nestos of plataea who is a, a greek farmer who ended up basically being like a, a hero and defeating mm. the persian army and he was he says at the end like there's no way for, no, for sure if he was real but people spoke about him yeah sort of in the same way as arthur and i think ragnar lothbrook was another character like that People said, like, no, there's no way to know for sure he was real, but it was like, and, and that's what I suppose the same now, isn't it? Like, we we love heroes. We yeah. always rally behind heroes and figures that we agree with or inspire us and stuff like that. So, all throughout history, really. But I suppose just back then, it was a lot more violent, the heroes. <laughs> yeah. Like, killing people. And, but yeah, so that's, that's, I mean, so where does Merlin come into it then? Like, it, it does go down quite a, a magical route. Yeah. Yeah. Until... Weirdly, um, he comes in quite early. Um, uh, I believe there are some stories in like 6th, 7th century that bring him in, although it's sort of, he's not called Merlin from yeah. the start. So there's like, there's a figure who comes in as a sort of advisor who turns out to have some powers, you know, and then that is spun into, um, like he's, he gets Latinized to Merlin and it gets spun into magical powers. But for some reason, even though like in medieval times, Christianity was so prevalent that that wasn't 
um, you know, that, that wasn't the expected thing to say, the magical powers didn't get taken away from him. It was seen as a good thing and it was seen as used for good. Yeah. So that's that's another strange thing. They did want to keep that element of the story and they did want to keep Merlin as a hero as well, which sometimes it happens that the zeitgeist changes and then they think, okay, now this person who we liked before we don't like anymore. Yeah. Um but you know, in this instance, um it that pretty much stayed the same, even though, you know, um the I mean, you know, the, the grail is a, is a magical item, really, when you talk about it like that. Did um, they ever find it? Depends on the story. And some stories they do, yes. Um, yeah. There's a fisher king who owns it, who uh, who is kept alive by the grail, but has done something horrible and received a horrible wound and cannot die from it because the grail is present. And uh. at the end of the story, it, it all gets resolved and all that. But like there are stories where they find it. It's quite interesting because it changes shape as well, um, because it's one of those words that were sort of interpreted in weird ways. And it, the literal meaning of the first word that they used for it was serving dish. So at the start, it's a serving dish because someone like interpreted it as that. Yeah. Although in the Roman context, it probably context it probably wasn't a serving dish at all. <laughs> um, yeah. It probably was something metaphorical of some kind. And then it gets changed into. Uh, the cup that Christ um, drank out of um, at the Last Supper, and then it gets, you know, it gets added that um, Christ's blood was caught in the cup. There's a, there are tales where the Grail is a, a lance that bleeds, and it's, you know, we're not yeah. always sure why that, why it got changed to what, but it's one yeah. of those things, just like like other elements in the story that got changed. But Merlin pretty much stayed the same. Yeah. I can't help but think of Indiana Jones when we talk about the Holy Grail. Oh yes, that's that's one of the modern adaptations, really. <laughs> Classic Arthurian tale. Yeah, <laughs> just as much as any of the like French people who wrote the stuff that we now know as the the classic stuff they were just riffing off of something they'd heard from yeah. someone over a campfire, you know. It's cool. It's like a, a shared universe. Mm-hmm. Or a collective fan fiction, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's amazing. Like, and it's people still write Arthurian tales now. I remember I was a fantasy con. I was chatting to a guy. I actually bought his book, and it was I think it's called Camelot twenty three fifty. It's called. I've got it on the shelf there. <laughs> so it's like, if, what I would do if Camelot was like still around? In like, yeah, I mean, he is supposed future. to come back. Yeah. Arthur is supposed to come back, isn't he? So, oh, is he like a uh, a bit of a risen from the dead kind of thing? What's the title? Well, he's never supposed to have died. He went to Avalon after he received his mortal wound, and but oh. there he's supposed to have survived and like been kept alive by fairies or whatever the story is. And then yeah. he is supposed to come back to save the Britons once more. One Fuck day, no. we could do with him now. <laughs> I know yeah. <laughs> it's a prime time for Arthur. <laughs> oh, yeah. Indeed. Yeah, come and take, get rid of take Liz my Truss. energy bill, please. <laughs> yeah. Go and heat up the country with your dragons and get rid of Liz Truss. Yeah. <laughs> how did the dragons fit into the whole Arthurian tale? Was that like something you went off and, and slain? I think they came in more sort of um, along Merlin's lines. Um, yeah. They're quite Germanic, really... aren't they? You were saying in the past, the dragon stories. Do you think it's probably that strand of storytelling? Um, not necessarily, because there's also a, the 
the the very strong tradition of Welsh dragons oh, being considered. And Arthur does appear in the Mabinovian. Yeah. So that's that's another strand of uh, storytelling that we've got there. Um, and there are plenty of dragons in the Mabinovian. So I would assume Ooh. that that's where they came in. Really. Nice. That's cool. I like yeah. no one knows where Camelot would have been, or do you suspect where it would have been? Because I was well, in Wales yeah. before. Wales, yeah. Wales sounds good to me, but only because, yeah. right? Uh, and I think South Wales, because Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. If this is anything to go by, it says in the poem that he travels north and ends up in the Wirral, which is not far away from where I'm from. And it's such a mm-hmm. random place to end up. <laughs> the the Wirral. <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so maybe South Wales or Mid Wales, whatever, around there. The, the classic place is Tintagel, um, where they expect it would have been. Isn't there but, some kind of Merlin's Island around there somewhere as well? Or? I think so, oh. yeah. I haven't been. Yeah, I, I went to Wales relatively recently, and like everywhere you go, they're like, this is the birthplace of Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> the Welsh are quite confident he is yeah. a Welsh figure. Yeah. He could nice. have been Cornish, though. He could have been Cornish. And I think the Cornish are quite quite adamant that he was Cornish as well. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's have a fight over that one. <laughs> so that's uh, a pretty good overview of King Arthur. What about Beowulf? Yeah, Beowulf is less easy to pin down mm. because it's kind of, it's a, it's a really strange tale in terms of the fact that it's like one of the really prevalent Anglo-Saxon tales that we have it's written in kind of an anglo-saxon dialect of old english but it's sort of about pagan scandinavia it's not really about the anglo-saxon england um we don't really know who wrote it but it's kind of tolkien would kill me for saying this but (laughs) in my understanding it's sort of an epic sort of heroic poem that follows this hero beowulf through his kind of life as a young man uh, slaying monsters and then as he gets older his life slaying dragons and becoming king it's quite Game of Thrones and all the like yeah the senses of regency and royalty and overcoming adversity to kill the monsters that's nice. kind of its strong background but it's in, in terms of like where it was written or why or who by it's not easy to pin down at all we only know that it's in that Anglo-Saxon dialect, and really beyond that, we're like, eh, yeah, that makes it really cool. The mystery. So, when did it sort of surface Anglo-Saxon times, and that was sort of what towards yeah. the eight hundreds, nine hundreds, was it? Early I would Middle think Ages. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be set in the in the seventh century, and seventh the manuscript century. is from the eleventh century, though. So it's quite yeah. far removed, and also like some of the edges have burned off. So yeah, um, we don't really yeah. we don't have everything. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's yeah, supposed they... to have been written down after oral tradition, really. Yeah. So what sort of like things happen? I know you mentioned like monsters. Are there any sort of iconic scenes from the? Uh, the yeah. So the the first kind of half of it is really about this young hero Beowulf killing a monster called Grendel, who's been like generally bothering the people around him and going up against this monster and what is kind of a David or Goliath this like sort of esque fight fighting up against this huge monstrous figure which is a fight of course he wins and overcomes Um, 
and probably and the last fight in Beowulf, I believe, is um is against a dragon mm-hmm. and a dragon. So it's it's the classic draconic ending to the hero's tale, slaying the mm-hmm. dragon at the end of the story. <laughs> How does he slay the dragon? Just out of interest. I only ask this because I've been playing Elden Ring and I've been trying to kill this dragon and I'll get one chance. <laughs> I wouldn't think in the Elden Ring. Uh, yeah, no, he gets some ideas, don't you? I, I think he uses him in the throat is, the, is what he does, but he also dies doing it. So. Oh, fuck. Um, because That's how dragon... dies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, he gets basically uh, breathed to death with acid from the dragon. So there you go. Um, oh. Yeah. One of those classic Germanic dragons that don't breathe fire, but acid. Yeah. That'd be a brutal way to go. Yeah. And was he saving someone from the, the dragon? Nope. Nope. What, he was just, just trying vanity. to. He was yeah. trying to get at the horde and to like sort of spread ah. wealth in his in his kingdom sort of thing yeah because by that point he's become king so it's like his responsibility yeah. to deal with the dragon yeah ah well well mm-hmm. never mind eh poor Bale. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting the uh, influence that the stories had them considering there was no author and it just sort of appears and i'm guessing that's just one of them that's just been retold over time but um yeah like Tolkien absolutely like you mentioned there absolutely loved it and he he was a, a big translator wasn't he of of mm-hmm. that old style of language there's some really good essays he, he put together and, and lectures that you can read about about like the Beowulf and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and um like the influence that it had on him is quite a, a profound so like orcs that's the first mention of orcs is like from around well, in, in this in this Western society, anyway, is like in Beowulf. I think they're called Orcus, and that that's where the Orcs came from. So, are there any other influences that you know of that have sort of filtered yeah. the way through? Yeah, it became kind of a popular site for like an academic fighting match, sort of <laughs> yeah. during Tolkien's era. A lot of mm. people took it as like a literary or historical, like, academic accolade to try and translate Beowulf and have the best translation. The one that I know the best is um, Seamus Heaney's, which oh. is a great best translation. No offence to Tolkien, but best translation of Beowulf. Oh, no, Tolkien's translation isn't great. It's it's very unpoetic. I read that one, and <laughs> I, I yeah, had to read the summary afterwards to understand. <laughs> yeah, I know you, Heaney. you trust the, you trust the poet, wouldn't you, to tell the poem? Yeah. So yeah. I have to get that shame machine. I didn't even know he, he was into yeah. that kind of thing. It's really great because it the the first word of Beowulf, which I will not even try to pronounce, it's something like huet or how oh hui, um, is an is an old English word which has been sort of translated and translated and translated again, and nobody really knows what to do with it. It's sort of generally sometimes thought to mean listen, like a yeah. call to listen. It's sort of, we know that it's some kind of like provocation of some kind, either like listen or hey or hear, here's the story. But no one really knows what to do with it. And all the translators kind of messed about with it for a while and it tripped a lot of people up. And Heaney was like, well, what I'm not going to try and do is translate this in any way that would be like, this is the correct way to translate this word. Yeah. He instead decided it to, to translate it in a way that was like, meaningful to him in a way that matched his dialect and his culture and his sort of understanding of the story. 
So the the way he starts his Beowulf is just so because yeah. of course he's hmm. from Ireland and that's their way of telling anecdotes. And yeah. if that Irish soul begins a story that tells you, all right, I'm gonna tell you a story now. Yeah. It's a really good way of translating a story. That's cool. Yeah. Cool to check that that's out. Great. And is it so it did they influence Tolkien with any other authors that influence that you know of? Um Tolkien, Heaney, I think Hughes talks about being influenced by Beowulf, all of those kind of that era of writers. Um, I think is C.S. Lewis someone you would know you Yeah, know. yeah, Lewis yeah. talks about Beowulf. But all of Tolkien's writing group, the Inklings, were mad about all of those texts. Like they started like being friends because they set up their own little group reading Norse myths, actually. Yeah. And yeah. then they started going into the Anglo-Saxon stuff and things as well, which Tolkien was sort of trying to revive, really, because a lot of people have moved on a little bit from that. And yeah. um, he was insisting that that was a part of literature that everyone else was sort of putting aside as language because it's a different language from what we speak now. But it's, you know, he was trying to integrate that back into a literary canon back in the day. Um, and very much of the of the school of thought that said Shakespeare was too modern for university study. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was the sort of movement. Um, the, the Inklings were Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams. And then they had some other friends who were part of the group, like Lewis's brother Warney. Um, and who who we owe quite a lot of the info of too, because he wrote his diary about all that. Um, you know, what are the other study colleagues of theirs that um, took part sometimes in discussions and things like that? So yeah, they were all cool. very much into that. <laughs> cool, it's being a fly on the wall there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, oh, it's a, it's a, it's amazing, really. Like seeing how. It inspires so many people and continues to inspire people. So have you got any advice to anyone like um, who would like to learn more? Like, I know the essays are sometimes better than reading these things because they are, mm. unless you can get your head around the, the way things are worded and stuff, it can be a bit tricky. So is there any good explainers that you know of? Yeah, I mean, I mean Tolkien's essay on Beowulf, well, Tolkien's multiple essays, but there's one particular one that I know pretty well. It is a pretty good not necessarily of explaining because he doesn't do much of that but of yeah. like talking you around to his way of thinking about the old he kind of talks about the fact that he doesn't think of it as an epic or as a heroic story which is bizarre but, you know um and that he thinks it more of like a story that's made out of building blocks it's kind of more about life and and all of the kind of the way that the world was back in that time or the way that the world was thought of by these oral traditions yeah yes yes it's a pretty good yeah, I agree. What do you think about King Arthur? Oof, difficult. I I don't really. I did a I did a module on King Arthur um at uni, but I don't really remember the. I I read so many like essays on on also on like the original text and then translations. They made us read it all in Middle English. <laughs> so that was fun. Um. It's it's actually for anyone who's interested or is you know wants to get that flavor. I would suggest to read a little bit out of the text and maybe like have you know have one with a translation on the other page or something. That's sometimes helpful that you don't get annoyed, but it, you will understand a lot more than you think in the Middle English text. 
Yeah. Um, it's not like the sort of, you know, reading for pleasure kind of thing, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, if it's just a page or something, it gives you a flavor and it gives you like a bit of a, an inkling of what the, the medieval uh, text would have sounded like to an audience who, who read it. So Yeah. And what do you think writers can take from these stories? Because they've obviously left impressions on people. So what, what is it that's about them that has sort of endured? Is it the sort of grand adventures and the, it's like escapism, isn't it? Medieval escapism with all the monsters and the dragons and stuff like that. Yeah, I think there's an element of that for sure. The kind of dragons and the big, huge parts of the story. But I mean, Tolkien's story is also kind of a heroic epic. So a lot of fun, as a lot of fantasy is, I think those kind of parts of the story always linger on too. But I think having written, being currently writing historical fiction, it's hard to underestimate how useful it is to hear the voice of kind of those older times, because it's incredibly hard to think about what would people have thought about and talked about and told stories about all of these years ago. Yeah. And sometimes having something like this where you can read, obviously this is a fictional tale about dragons, but at the same time you can kind of read the sensibilities and the thoughts and the dreams of the people all that time ago. That can sometimes give you a bit of an insight into an, into an older world that we have no other real way of accessing, I think. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's been brilliant chatting about this. Thank you very much for, for giving up your time to discuss it with me for the benefit of everyone there listening at home um how can we find out a bit more about you guys and the faith fellows podcast um so we're on anchor and thereby sort of all good podcast platforms so just yeah look up faith fellows podcasts and on social media we are just faith fellows on twitter and faith fellows podcast everywhere else so uh that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. So do check us out if you'd like oh, to hear nice. more of our crazy tales. <laughs> Amazing. I'll be putting the links in the description as well. So if anyone is interested in checking out, you can just have a little look below and, and find more there. Well, thank you very much again. And thank you, everyone at home, for listening. A massive thank you to Yanina and Lucy for giving up their time to chat about these quite remarkable stories. Um, something i love about them is that nobody knows who really wrote them apart from like the, the more contemporary tales but beowulf uh in the green knight these tales are just sort of almost gifts from that period in time Um no one knows who wrote them for sure um and that's what makes them so interesting to me i really hope you learned something new from from our conversation i myself have, have gone and Got myself a copy of Seamus Heaney's um, Beowulf. I'm reading that and it's fantastic so far. It, it's it's quite refreshing to read poetry as someone who just pretty much always reads novels and short stories. So, yeah, it's very good. If you happen to get a copy yourself of Beowulf or any of the Arthurian legend tales, please get in touch to let me know what you think. And why not join our writing community to discuss them too? We meet on Facebook and Discord. We've got hundreds of people in each one, um, and it's open to everybody. You can find a link in the description below. And that is about all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Um, To make sure that you don't miss the next episode, which is coming out on the 14th of November, subscribe and follow. If you really did enjoy the episode, 
please consider giving us a quick rating on Spotify. It's really helpful in helping us reach uh, new people and more people discovering the show. So really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about the show, if you'd like to get access to writing classes, special interviews and writing guides that you can't find anywhere else, head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the description. And don't forget, on the 30th of November, we've got our free book marketing class, which is all about email marketing. So if you want to learn more about this medium of promoting your books and engaging with your followers then you want to sign up for free today it's basically packed with insights that myself and emma daisy um have learned after many years of trial and error and doing things that the hard way we've we've now pretty much got our email marketing where we want it to be and we're at the stage now where we feel confident enough to share these insights with everybody else so i I look forward to seeing you there if you're able to make it but if not don't worry because i'll send you the recording straight after so to sign up again just click the link in the description below and that is about all we'll be back on the 14th of november and until then keep on scribbling (laughs) 